we've got a picture for you. In an article titled, How a Young Woman Lost Her Identity, the New Yorker magazine tells the story of Hannah Up. Hannah had been missing for nearly two weeks when she was seen at an Apple store in midtown Manhattan. Her friends had posted thousands of flyers at subway stations and, and bus stops. It was September, and Hannah, a middle school teacher at Harlem's Thurgood Marshall Academy, had not shown up for the first day of school. Her roommate had found her wallet, passport, metro card, and cell phone in her purse on the floor of her bedroom. The news reported, teacher, 23, disappears into thin air. Store security cameras showed that a man had stopped Hannah and asked if she was the missing teacher in the news. Her recorded response, which investigators later showed to her mom, revealed two things. First, this was indeed Hannah. And second, Hannah didn't know it. She was spotted half a dozen other times in the next week before a Staten Island ferry captain spotted a body bobbing near a reef. It was Hannah, but she was alive. She was taken to a local hospital to be treated for hypothermia and dehydration. For three weeks, her own biography had been inaccessible to her, but now when the medical staff asked her questions, she was suddenly able to tell them her name, even her mom's phone number. As soon as she was lifted from that river, she remembered all the details of her life prior to her disappearance. She was given a diagnosis of dissociative fugue, sometimes called Jason Bourne syndrome, a rare condition in which people lose access to their autobiographical memory and personal identity, occasionally taking on a new one. The state is typically triggered by trauma or an unbearable internal conflict see, as a rough season came upon her, Hannah forgot who she was and began living like she was somebody else, to the point that when she actually heard her own story, hey, you're the girl from the news, right? She didn't recognize it as her own. The loss that comes from forgetting your biography, your story, runs deep. In a lecture at Covenant Seminary, uh, Mark Minnell shared uh, his reflection uh, after hearing the stories of Peter and Marcus, two men with amnesia. First, without memory, it's hard to cling to an identity. So one of the patients said, I don't have the moorings that the other people draw on to know who they are. Second, it's hard to have hope when we don't know our own past. As their doctor explains, the inability to invoke the past greatly impedes their ability to imagine a future. What if someone came up to you and asked, what's your story? Where do you come from? Where are you going? And like Hannah, like Marcus, like Peter, you can't give the right answer because you don't know, you don't remember. Where would you turn to remember? While most of us will never experience a medically diagnosable form of amnesia, there is a spiritual amnesia that we're all vulnerable to. God knew that his people would struggle to remember, and especially in trying times, not just where did I leave my keys, but, but, but what's my story? What's the source of my identity? What's my reason for hope? Who am I? Where am I from? And where am I actually going? And there are some things God wanted his people to never forget. And so he gave them a memento. He gave them a meal. 
We read about it in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So what do we see in here? We see the description of a meal, what's often called Jesus' Last Supper. And to see its significance uh, in the face of our own spiritual amnesia, we need to look at three things here. First, what this meal meant before Jesus. Then what this meal meant with Jesus. And finally, what does this meal mean for us today? So what's this meal mean before Jesus? Well, in verse 8, Jesus says, go and make preparations for us to eat what they call the Passover. You see, for over a thousand years, generation after generation, on the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar, Israelites shared in a meal called the Passover. We heard about its origins in the scripture reading. You see, in the midst of their slavery in Egypt, God sent Moses to say to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, let my people go. But Pharaoh refused. So nine times, God sent a plague on the land, each plague worse than the one that was before it, each plague uniquely tailored to demonstrate God's power over the Egyptian gods and the things that they were worshiping. And yet each time, Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go. And yet, God had a tenth plague. Judgment will fall on all of the land of Egypt and all of its gods. It was going to come upon every household in the land, even Pharaoh's. But there was a way for God's people to be spared from the judgment that was to come. And with it would come their freedom. God tells his people in Exodus 12 to take a year-old lamb from their flocks and at twilight kill it and apply some of its blood to the doorframe of their houses. When God comes in judgment on the land, he will see the blood on their houses and pass over them so that no plague would fall upon them. And the very next day, Pharaoh let God's people go. Freedom, release from their bondage, because their oppressors had been judged, securing their deliverance. And so that they would never forget, the meal that they ate that night would be the same meal they eat every single year on the anniversary of their liberation. And every part of it had significance. 
In verse 7, we see that they ate the meal called on what was, they ate on what was called the day of unleavened bread. Unleavened or, or flat bread uh, represented uh, what they would leave, that the fact that they had to leave in haste before there was time for bread to rise. The bitter herbs uh, that they ate represented the bitterness of their slavery. Roasted lamb represented the lamb whose blood they took shelter under. And the significance wasn't in just what they ate, but how they ate it. As we heard in the, the scripture reading, they were to eat it with their belts fastened, sandal on their feet, and staff in their hands, because the first Passover had to be eaten in haste. After generations of seemingly endless slavery in Egypt, they now needed to be ready to leave at, at any moment. Together, this meal tells a story. The story of God's uh, people. We were slaves. It was a bitter existence, but God came in judgment and delivered us swiftly. Because another was slain, a spotless lamb. We were spared. Spared from the judgment that had proved that God is God, and all other gods, like the gods of Egypt, were mere idols, a false gods that cannot save. But yet as we read on in Exodus... We soon see that God didn't tell them to keep this feast of the year just because they needed another holiday. The first generation to eat this meal, the Exodus generation, once freed from their idol-worshipping captors in, in Egypt, made an idol themselves, a golden calf, and they bowed down to worship it, to give it thanks for taking them out of Egypt. You see, those that God had just freed were just as prone to idolatry and every other sin as their former captors. They just had fewer opportunities. They were passed over, not because of their race, not because of their religion, not because of their goodness, but because of God's goodness. And multiple times, gr while grumbling about the limited menu that came with life on the other side of Egypt, they claimed that they were better off before. They would say things like, at least in Egypt, we had meat as if they had already forgotten that they were slaves there. God's people needed this repeated reminder of this Passover meal, this reminder of where they came from, who they are, and who their God is, whenever they were tempted to go back to the oppressive lives that they had left behind. And so as the next generation prepared to enter the promised land, the importance of the meal is reiterated. In Deuteronomy 16.3, we read, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Eat this and remember what your God has done. And don't just remember, but celebrate. In an interview with one of his local TV stations, uh, Steve Goldberg, the Jewish owner of the Stage Deli in Detroit, Michigan, described the Passover like this. It's a time when we celebrate our freedom from slavery in ancient Egypt thousands of years ago. We remember the humanity of being slaves and celebrate the freedom of being released. The Passover meal was designed to both humble and to encourage its participants that they might remember and rejoice and live in light of what their God had done. All this meaning was there, simmering in the background as the disciples made preparation for this meal. And knowing that what this meal already meant before Jesus sets the table, you might say, to understand what this meal meant with Jesus. In a nutshell, 
It meant the same, but, but more. You see, in many ways, it was the same as any other Passover meal, but some things were different. And that's where the deeper significance would lie. We see it in, in who they ate it with, um, what they heard there, and where it pointed them. Uh, first, who they ate this meal with. All of these men would have been expected to eat this meal with their families. That's what we heard in the scripture reading in, in Exodus 12, verse 3. This was a family meal. You, you eat this with your household, just as they did in Egypt. Think of all the expectations uh, that a parent might have of being with their children on the holidays, and then add to a family expectation God's own command to do so. And yet, despite all of that, we read in verse 8, Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And again, in verse 11, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Jesus takes this family meal and tells his disciples, I'm eating this with you. It says in verse 15, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. One reason for this, as scholars have noted, is that the Passover represented the founding of the nation of Israel. And just as 12 tribes partook in the first Passover on their last night in Egypt, now Jesus' 12 apostles partake in this meal with him on his last night before his crucifixion. Jesus, as God in the flesh, is essentially constituting his followers as the family of God. In Matthew 12, Jesus redefines family when he says, whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see, from the time of the apostles onward, Christians have used the language of family to describe their relationships with each other. Jesus is saying, think of those that you would normally share this meal with, and you're starting to understand the type of community that I'm forming through this meal. As they gathered together, what it all meant was further revealed, not just through, uh, not just through um, who they ate it with, but what they heard together. You see, the Passover is what you might call a liturgical meal. By the time of Jesus, the Passover meal had, was eaten by following very well-developed scripts, scripts that would tell the story of the Passover and its significance. The father would have his lines to say, the youngest child would have their lines to speak, and, and so on. The script, the liturgy, would point them back to what happened long before, and what someone heard at the Passover meal tied in specifically to what they were about to eat or drink. So expecting to hear one thing, you can just imagine uh, the surprise when Jesus' disciples hear what he was saying at the Last Supper. We read in verse 19 that Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. You see, normally, when serving the unleavened bread, one would draw from Deuteronomy and maybe say something like, our forefathers were slaves, but God looked upon their affliction. And then hold the bread and say something like, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in Egypt. But at this meal, Jesus seems to go off script when he takes the bread, breaks it, and essentially says, this is the bread of my affliction. He then takes the cup of wine and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Or as Matthew's gospel makes more explicit, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. 
And as he said it, you could just imagine the apostles' eyes getting wide like saucers while their mouths just hung gaping open because they knew about covenants between God and people being established by blood. But the only blood at the Passover was the blood of, of the lamb, which was slain, which was killed, and, and Jesus being the one declared by John the baptizer as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is saying to them, that is what's going to happen to me for you. And in this we see the third difference, where it pointed them. See, the point of this meal, as a reminder, was always to point God's people back, back to him, back to who he is and what he has done. And yet here Jesus uh, seems to use this meal to point to himself as their covenant-making God in the flesh, and not just point them back, but, but forward to the cross and to what he will do there. From the beginning of this meal, Jesus is talking about the cross, saying in verse 15, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That's because when Jesus shares this Passover meal with his disciples, he's not only telling but showing them what they should make of it, using it to interpret the cross before the cross actually happens. If you were to go back and ask an ancient Israelite, what's your story? They might respond by saying, we were slaves in a foreign land. Our lives were in danger. Judgment was coming, but God delivered us because we took shelter under the blood of the lamb. And Jesus is using this meal to say, that's what I am doing for you. You need to take shelter under me. And just as you ate the Passover in remembrance of, of who your God is and what he has done before, now eat this meal, the bread and the cup, what we often call the Lord's Supper, in remembrance of me, who I am, what I am doing. And with that in mind, we can start to see what this meal means for us. Jesus says in verse 19, do this in remembrance of me. That's because just like God's people before us, we too can forget. And not just what Jesus did, but, but like the ancient Israelites, we too need to be reminded of our identity by being reminded of our story, where we've come from, who we are, and where we are going. As C.S. Lewis put it, we have to be continually reminded of what we believe Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. And as we partake in this meal, and remember, as we come to the Lord's table, we drive down deep inside its meaning for us. So then what does it mean for us? Well, first, just like the ancient Israelites, just like the apostles, those that we eat this meal with are family, the family of God. As many of you have heard, this congregation was uh, founded at the height of the Civil War, at a time when not only the nation was divided, but even families, when it wasn't uncommon for a family where one son goes to fight for the North while the other fights against him for the South. And yet when entire denominations were dividing along Northern and Southern lines, the people of what was then called the 16th and Walnut Presbyterian Church declared we would know in the house of God no political parties or sectional sympathies. 
and the assertion was, was made good by the election of officers from opposite political sentiments. One of the founding elders of this church was A.G. Edwards, who was a general who fought uh, and led soldiers for the North and was a member of Abraham Lincoln's cabinet. Another, Edward Burdell Sr., was under house arrest at the time of the founding, charged with communicating with the Confederate Army, which at the time included his son, a son who died in battle just four months later. Northern Republican general who led men in battle, killing Southern soldiers, and a Southern Democrat whose own son was one of those killed. And yet as Edwards and Burdell came to the Lord's table to partake in this meal, at a time when people would drink the communion uh, from a common cup, these two men would likely have drank from the same cup, maybe even the very cup that you see on the table before you. They're the same ones from over 150 years ago. And while numerous, the reason why it's because while they were of opposite regional sympathies and political sentiments, at this table they were family. At a time when even families were divided, this meal brought divided people together as family. And while numerous things divide people today, this meal declares that there is a spiritual identity that runs deep enough to allow us to come together in spite of those things. And second, Jesus died so that we can be free. Free from condemnation. Uh, think of what a Passover sacrifice meant for the first people to eat it. The judgment of death was coming, and it would fall on everyone, even on Israelites. You see, the things that they did when they left Egypt showed they were no better than the Egyptians. They were no less idolaters. They, too, deserved the judgment of condemnation. They, too, deserved death. The sacrificed lamb, on the other hand, was perfect, without blemish. You see, if God had simply treated the Israelites as they deserved, the lamb would live and the Israelite would, would die. In other words, the sacrificial lamb was their substitute. The sacrificial lamb took their place. Why did the lamb have to be perfect? Because the people were far from perfect. Why did it have to die? Be because an Israelite should have died. And so Jesus takes the Passover meal and its message, and as he eats it with his disciples, he essentially tells them, he, he tells us, that's who I am, the true Lamb of God, the one that all the other Passover lambs pointed to. That is why I have come to live the perfect spotless life that God's law requires, the life that you should have lived but couldn't, and then to die, to take upon myself the sin and judgment that you deserved, that you might be saved under my blood, and to know that the wrath of God that was coming because of your sin has been satisfied. That's why Paul can write in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who have put their faith in him. Also that as you remember this and partake of it by faith, it would change you. Not simply as a reminder, but actually as a spiritual meal. One that strengthens us, empowers us, and renews us 
by the real presence of Jesus in the element, which we receive by faith as our spiritual food for our souls. All of that so that we would not only be free from condemnation, but free from bondage. And that might sound odd to you, because we usually think of bondage or slavery as uh, as something exterior, not internal, something obvious. But it can be both external and internal. Think about the Israelites, their slavery, as a picture of what bondage looks like externally. There were good things that you should be free to do, but you can't. The Israelites could not take a day off. They could not go out to worship or or do anything else for that matter. And yet there are also things that you should be able to do, but some that you should not have to do, but someone is making you. They shouldn't have to be free labor for the Egyptians' building projects. They shouldn't have to make bricks without straw or endure unjust beatings from their slave masters. External slavery is obvious. Internal slavery. Internal bondage is not as obvious, but it it works the exact same way. For example, in Romans 6, the Apostle Paul describes the internal bondage that comes with sin by saying, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. For sin shall not be your master. Did you catch the words there? Sin is described as a master reigning over you so that you do not do what you want, but what it wants. Something that you obey, not because it's good or or good for you, maybe not even because you want to, but because you feel like in that moment you have to. That's why Jesus can say in John 8, 34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. It's an internal bondage. And that's what we need delivered from. And so what happens if you're not freed from it? Paul writes in in Romans 6.16, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. You see, just like the ancient Israelites, all of us face an oppressive slave master who will do us harm if we are not set free. And yet God's heart to liberate people, not only from external but internal bondage, was there all along. Right after the book of Exodus, we read in Leviticus eleven forty-five, God saying, I brought you up out of Egypt, therefore be holy. The God who frees you from both condemnation and bondage does so to free us to live as we ought to. And God is saying all the way back in the Old Testament, the reason to live differently and the power to live differently comes from what I have already done for you, from my act of salvation, from my transforming grace. You see a beautiful picture of this in Victor Hugo's novel, Les Miserables, where Jean Valjean is a convicted thief recently freed from prison. His record makes it hard for him to find work or lodging until he is offered food and shelter by a bishop. At dinner, this man, once imprisoned for theft, can't help but notice the shining, expensive silver in the dining room. That night, he sneaks into the dining room to steal the silver. When he's discovered by the one who took him in, he strikes the bishop and knocks him out. He leaves, but is soon discovered by the authorities, whom he lies to, saying, 
The silver was a gift. They don't buy it. Soon Valjean is back where he came from, standing before the one that he robbed and assaulted, who still bears the visible marks of Valjean's sin on his forehead. You could just imagine what it would be like standing there in Valjean's shoes, looking into the eyes of the one who showed you so much kindness, who wo whose wounds testify to how you have shown them the opposite, testifying to your sin. You can imagine the fear in his eyes having just spent the last 19 years, the prime of his life, in bondage because of just one crime, now to be facing even more time for what he had just done to the one standing in front of him. And if you can imagine that, then you can imagine the utter unbelief when the bishop, the one whom he had wronged, the one who had the power to either uh, condemn or liberate him, says to Valjean, so here you are, I'm delighted to see you. Had you forgotten that I gave you the candlesticks as well? They're silver like the rest and worth a good 200 francs. Did you forget to take them? Hugo writes, Jean Valjean's eyes had widened. He was now staring at the old man with an expression no words can convey. To Valjean's surprise, the bishop didn't condemn him, didn't give him what he deserved. Instead, he gave him what he needed to be free. Soon the handcuffs are removed and the police walk away. Valjean's promise that night to become a new man rings true throughout the rest of the story in his kindness, his generosity, and his mercy. And the reason why is summed up in his response uh, to, uh, the bishop's response to his question, why are you doing this? To which the bishop replies, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I have bought your soul. I have ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you. And as we say here so often, it cost him a lot more than a pair of silver candlesticks. It cost him his very life. Not a single wound to his face, but, but wounds to his hands and to his feet and a pierced side. The true Lamb of God who takes away sin by offering his body, his blood, his very life for you so that his people, we who were under the bondage and condemnation because of sin, can be free from condemnation, free from bondage, and free to live as we ought. Empowered by the grace that we receive through this meal. And in doing so, he makes us family, the family of God. And he invites us to gather, to share in this meal, to be reminded as we partake that we too were slaves before this meal, but shall be slaves no more. And in doing so, to be strengthened in it. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, this is your story. And Jesus gave us this meal so that we would never, ever forget it. And so we too eat and drink this as a reminder of who we are, of what God has done and who we are as a result, that we would no longer live out of a false identity because of our forgetting, since we are no longer slaves to sin, but righteousness. And just as the Passover pointed forward, to what Jesus would do when his hour had come. When we come to the Lord's table, there's a future reality that Jesus points us to. 
so that we would have hope knowing where our story is headed. He says, I will not eat it again. I will not drink the fruit of the vine until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And friends, that's because there's another meal, a celebratory feast that comes when Jesus returns, often called the wedding supper of the lamb in the new heavens and the new earth where all things are made through, where we are finally liberated from not just the power of sin, but its pollution as well, when we will no longer forget or be tempted to return to our old oppressive master of sin, when everything sad will come untrue, all when this meal finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And so as we come to this table, each week, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again as a celebration of what has been done, how he has made us family, and a foretaste of the joy that's to come. Let me pray for us.